Hey, it's Vinny Todorich from the Angriest Trainer Podcast with the beautiful Anna Pacino. And you know what we do when we're not doing our show? We listen to Michael O'Neill. And you know what Michael O'Neill is? He's the guy who hosts the Solopreneur Hour. The Solopreneur Hour podcast. Job security for the unemployable. It's the Solopreneur Hour podcast with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to the Solopreneur Hour podcast, where every episode we co-host with the best and brightest solopreneurs in the land. And now your host, Michael O'Neill. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode number 106 of the Solopreneur Hour What's happening? How are you? This episode is brought to you by, you know it, GoDaddy. Uh, you can get your $2.95 domain name just by entering the promo code SOLO295 at checkout. SOLO295 at checkout. And uh, as always, we will talk more about that. So today I'm psyched. Um, I was uh, chatting with Vinny Tortorich a couple weeks ago, and we were just talking about some cool people that could be on the show. And he said, oh, you have to talk to my buddy. He's a writer. He's done movies. He's done television. He's done pretty much everything. He's, he's run the gambit within the uh, Hollywood writing scene. And it's a world that I know nothing about that I'm really excited to bring on Dean Laurie on the show today. What is happening, Dean? Ah, uh, n- not much. I'm, I'm excited to be here with you. I'm, I'm really uh, glad to be invited. Oh, good. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really fun. Again, whenever I get anybody in, in the performance or showbiz world, um, I've been a drummer for my whole life, so okay. I know how much hustle goes into trying to do something that's an art form like that. And it is, I, I think we have this giant misconception as, as society that once you've done it, like once you've punched that one ticket, you're good, you're good to go. And you've got this career that, that runs forever. Um, yeah. I feel like that's probably not the case in Hollywood. No, I mean, you're, you're constantly unemployed. I mean, that's that no matter how successful you get, uh, you know, your employment only lasts as long as the movie that you're working on or, you know, when the TV show ends or you finished writing the book that you're writing or whatever it is, you know, so it's just constant unemployment. So, you know, most of your life, um, you have to sort of create jobs for yourself. You know, you have to, you know, you try to get onto other people's stuff, but then you also have to create your own stuff just so you can stay employed. So, you know, and people tend to only remember the successes. Like they think back to the things that you did that that worked or got on the air or, or you know, in, in theaters or something like that. And, you know, they don't see the hundred things that you tried to make happen that you failed on. So right. uh, I think people have a perception that, you know, it's all success when in fact it's mostly <laughs> failure and a little success. Right, right. And it's funny. I, and and um, over the um, – just after the holidays, I, I went on a, a Howie Mandel-produced – uh, dating show uh, there in L.A. It was like just a pilot that he's putting out. Well, and, I, by the way, I know Howie Mandel very well, and yesterday I just spent two hours with Howie. Oh, funny. Yeah, he's, a, he's a great guy. I well, know him through Vinny. Oh, right, right. And so I, I got to meet him for a second, but then I also got to see the, the sort of dirty underbelly of Hollywood, which was um, nothing glamorous. Like the, the, the place where we shot this uh, test run or whatever it was, was on the lot that they do um, – uh, what's it called? Uh, Parks and Recreation. Oh, And it's it, it, just a yeah. warehouse. I mean it's yeah. just a warehouse in the middle of nowhere. It completely – I mean there's nothing there. It was There was nothing glamorous about it. And it just made me realize how – yeah, even if you're an actor, you're just 
you know, you're driving an hour to get to this place, and you just yeah. go and you punch in and you do your lines and you go home. Like, it's just a gig. There's it a is gig. a gig. And, and you're right. It only looks good where the cameras are pointed. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> Everywhere else, it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So yeah. Yeah, I, I, read a, I was reading your bio a little bit, and a couple things were interesting. Uh, Conyers, Georgia. You were born in Conyers. Is that right? Well, actually, or I was born there? in Oscoda, Michigan, um, oh. on an Air Force base because uh, my dad was in the uh, Air Force, and but I was only there for a few months. I really grew up uh, in Conyers, and uh, when I was there, it was just like a real kind of rural town. I mean, it was farms and cattle and all of that. And, and um, mountains. There's some hills there. Yeah, right? there's well, Georgia is pretty hilly, and yeah. you know um, now it's suburban Atlanta because you know Atlanta has spread out so far that, and I haven't been back there in 20 years, but. Um, my understanding now is it's a giant town and it's really busy. But when I was there, it was literally just trees. Well, I have a picture that I that was taken of me in the middle of the 1996 Norba National Finals. Norba okay. is the uh, National Off Road Mountain Biking Association. So it was like the big, it was the big sanctioned mountain bike final of the year, and it was in Conyers, Georgia. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm covered in mud because it was a, there's a whole red clay thing going on. Yeah. And that's all there is. And that stuff is you can't get it off. No. It's, and I think I still have it on. I think it's still yeah. <laughs> in some yeah. cracks of my body yeah. um, 20 years later. And and so it, it was. But I'm covered. I mean, I'm absolutely I look like a pair of white eyes sticking out of a brown person because I'm covered in mud. Like my entire uniform, my entire bike is totally in mud. But that was yeah. Conyers, Georgia. You can't you can't escape that in Conyers. No, it's, it's it's mostly about red clay. Yeah, and it was, uh, but it was cool. It was great trails, but it was weird because we were you had to um, <laughs> you had a about a hundred feet that you could ride your bike because it had been raining for two days, and then yeah. you pretty much ran with your bike on your shoulders for an hour and a half because you couldn't ride anywhere. It was just a sticky muck. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like a, a cool place to grow up in a way because now, you know, I, I, I live outside of Los Angeles and, you know, my kids sort of do, I guess, what most kids do. They, you know, they talk to their friends through text. They do all that kind of stuff. But for me, you know, we didn't really have any of that stuff and it was all woods. And so our days would be spent literally just biking around like you did. We'd go to the woods. There were a lot of vines and stuff in the trees, so we'd cut them off at the base, and then we'd go swinging out over the hills on the oh, vines cool. like Tarzan. You that's know, we'd fun. walk around. There was like a house that had a um, uh, um, a trampoline in the backyard, an old trampoline, and we'd sneak in there and jump on it every day until we'd get yelled at and have to leave. You know, it was like a very kind of like, you know, active place to grow up. Do you think generationally – ours? because I'm, I'm just a couple years younger than you um, – yeah. Do you think generally, generationally we were the last generation to be able to really enjoy that kind of upbringing? Yeah, I think it's pretty close to that because it's like you, you seem to kind of gravitate to whatever, you know, gives you the most um, – um, immediate bang for your buck. And so, you know, uh, once uh, the internet became a thing and, you know, it was popular and all of that, I mean, you know, it's like that's kind of more fun to mess around with than the other stuff. So I think everybody just naturally gravitates to it. But when that didn't exist, the other stuff seemed real fun. Right. Well, that's true. I, but I just, I think now I'm looking back and, and seeing, um, and I found myself doing this too. Like if you've owned an iPad for a while and then you get on your yeah. laptop computer and you yeah. try to, you try to like expand the pictures on your, your screen right. of your computer. I've done that a couple times now. Or try to just swipe down on yeah. my monitor and it doesn't do anything. I'm like, what's wrong with this thing? 
Um, I don't, it, it's amazing how quickly you um, become just, you know, kind of completely dependent on and your expectations of technology. Like, you know, I remember the first time that I was on a plane that had Wi-Fi on the plane. It was so exciting that I could get online. And then the next plane I was on didn't have Wi-Fi. And I was like, you know, I cannot believe it. What is wrong with this plane? <laughs> right, right. That's yeah. a whole bit. Louis C.K. does that bit. Louis C.K. Oh, does has, he? Oh, yeah. He's got, a, he's got an entire bit about how um, – we're the worst people because we just we just have like this <laughs> this relationship with technology. Yeah. We're like, oh man, it doesn't work anymore. We're like, what is it? What does it owe you? How does this thing owe you anything you didn't know existed five minutes ago? Like, how is that That's possible? Exactly it. Yeah, you, you you become completely reliant on something that you're right didn't even exist a day ago. Right. You're flying in. A, what do you say? You're flying in a chair in space. <laughs> um. Yeah. And the other. Uh, yeah. And the other one is that. Uh, when we tap our phones, we're like, oh, come on. It's just not working. It's like it's going to space. Can you give it a second <laughs> to get back from space doing your dumb text that nobody needed to see? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. solid. But I, I, but I grew up in Ohio. I grew up in rural Ohio. And same drill. It was just, you know, you'd leave. I, I was a, a nine-year-old kid who would go with his, his buddy Chad, and we'd go to the woods for seven hours, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. that was fine. It was just that's how it was. Uh, it's such a different world because, I, I mean, even I have a friend who's staying with me now who's in her early 20s. And just the whole, like, someone was talking about, like, the slacker generation. Right. And I'm I'm so curious about if 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 the, the table has been set for this sort of 25 and under um, set to to almost to like we're giving them almost no advantage and no no way to get out of this because everything is so accessible and instant. Um, yeah, it's it's I'm wondering, like, how much work ethic is going to come out of this next sort of generation? Well, I don't know. I mean, the one thing that I've noticed is that, um, you know, people in that age range require a ton of praise. And, you know, I think it's because, you know, they're, they're from that generation where, like, parents really got in, invested in, you know, you have to constantly tell them you're wonderful at what you do, you're great, you're special, you're a snowflake and all of that. And now, you know, at work and stuff, you, 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 you like, they get really hurt if they're just not praised constantly. <laughs> it's right. Just, it's, a, it's a strange kind of, um, it's a strange attitude. I feel like a lot of them didn't feel the back of dad's hand from the front seat to the back seat. That's right. They all they uh, all need to be happen. beaten up the way we were. Just well, bad. All right, <laughs> all right. Shut up. Um, it's but it was the uh, the YMCA generation, which is the everybody wins, right? Right. That's it. Everybody wins. Yeah. We, Vinny and I wrote about that in the book, uh, Fitness Confidential. It was uh, you know Vinny's very very uh, very down on the way that kids are raised today. Right. <laughs> I think I think he and I are probably simpatico in that world because um, just because again I think we're sort of this last leave it the beaver generation. Yeah, uh, with, without the milk toast approach. That's right. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, so you went to NYU, which is yeah. uh, which is that's a whole thing. I, I had a um, the lead singer of a band that I was in um, for many years, for ten years, uh, went to NYU, and then he would eventually go on to become the star of the cult horror classic Sleepaway Camp. Oh, um, and he was right around your time. His name was Jonathan Tiersten. Does that name ring a bell? 
It doesn't. Um, yeah, I don't know him uh, offhand, but yeah, I was there sort of like 85 to 89, um, and I loved it. You know, I had been in Conyers, Georgia, um, and at, I graduated high school at 17 and a half, and then I went straight to Manhattan. So, you know, I was really pretty young to be running around Manhattan. I guess all freshmen in you know, college are, As and I did, just yeah. loved it. I mean, I just gravitated to the city. I loved the city. You know, I was there uh, in the film and TV department, and, uh, you know, I, I loved doing that. And, um, you know, it, it's funny because like at the time, uh, like you're saying, you get to know people while you're there and you have no sense of, of that they might get famous or notable, you know, later. But like I was in the same dorm as Adam Sandler and Adam used to, you know, every Sunday night in the dorm, he would do a little bit of stand up for the dorm and all that, you know, and he was right. just a kid, it's, you know, and he was really funny and, and all of that. And, you know, nobody like we didn't know he was going to be Adam Sandler. He was just right. that guy. And and, you know, I, another guy that I knew there who um ran a checkout in the basement for film equipment was Vince Gilligan, who, um, whatever happened to him? Yeah, that's right. Whatever happened to that guy? He never did anything with his life. Um, in fact, I just saw him not too long ago, maybe two, three weeks ago at a, at a lunch. And, and so we had a lot of fun just catching up about, you know, what NYU was like, but we, you know, had a, had a great time there. I mean, it was, um, you had to be really self-motivated and, um, um, and that's, that's what it taught me. Like what, what I realized when we were there was, You'd have real, like, uh, limits to what you could do. Like, you'd have only, I don't know what it was, like two or three hours of editing, you know, in order to complete a project. Or, you know, the the equipment that you could rent was a very finite kit of equipment. And you sort of pretty quickly realized that if you wanted to do something special, if you wanted to do, you know, something exceptional, you had to find a way around the rules. Um, And so, you know, I became friendly with a buddy of mine, Anton Salix, ran night editing. Um, and then that would end at whatever time it ended, 10 o'clock or something like that. And so he closed the whole thing down and then his friends would all go back and he'd reopen it all up. And then we'd edit our films all night long till like mm. three or four in the morning. So we'd get all this extra editing time and it, it just kind of taught, you know, it's like, you have to be self-motivated. You have to find a way around the system, you know, if you want to get your stuff done. Yeah. So you were, you, you were actually there at the exact same time because when you, when you read Jonathan's bio, he talks about NYU and Adam Sandler and Molly Shannon was there, I guess, oh, as well. Yeah. So you, I'm sure you cross paths uh, with, with each other at some point. Um, I'm sure. Just, just as an aside, uh, now did you have you did you watch the entire run of, of Breaking Bad? Oh my God, yes. So, I mean, a, I, so I, as a writer, yeah. Wh- like to me, and I again for my neophyte view of, of writing, I was like, what the hell? What did the whiteboards look like to arc like they did? I mean, from season one to season five. And all of a sudden, this obscure thing gets connected and goes, yeah. And like, oh, that's what that's for. I mean, it was insane what they did. And every episode in that final season just kept getting better and better and better. And it was like, oh, I like it was. It was a pleasure to watch. And and as I say, uh, a few years ago, I went to a place called Palisade in Seattle, and yeah. they served me a. Um, I ordered a filet mignon with a with um, mashed potatoes and asparagus, just the most basic plate ever, uh, paleo baby, and they served me this this filet, and I had a bite of it, and I I was ast- I looked at it with a, an astounded look on my face, and I got up and I circled around the table, and I was pointing at it, and my friends were like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I don't know what they did there." That it, and I sat and I took another bite. I'm like. I've had steak my whole life. I've right. never had anything that was like this. Like this was insane. So the waiter, the waitress came up to me and she's like, "Is everything okay?" And I said, uh, "Emily, her name is Emily." And I said, "Come here." And I, she leaned in. I said, "No, a little closer." And she got. I said, um, "Is the person 
that made this still here? And she said, yes. And I said, uh, he's, he, yes, he's in the back. And I said, okay, I want you to go to the back into the kitchen. She's like linking. I'm going to be yelling. Right. Um, and I said, I want you to give him an open mouth kiss for me. I don't know what <laughs> they did to this, but it feels like it's been marinating since the Reagan administration. <laughs> it was insane. And it ruined steak for me. Like I, I've never had one anywhere near at that good. And that's right. how I feel Breaking Bad. That's what I feel like it did to TV. Well, it, it, it's I mean, for it my money, murdered it's, it. it's just it's the best show of the last decade. Yeah. Um, you know, I just I thought it was spectacular. And yeah, you know, in, in, in terms of their um, the writer's room, I mean, you know, Vince is like one of the great showrunners. And I, I remember he was talking about in, in some interview about, um, uh, you know, part of, of how they'd plot. And um, and he would say, you know, we would often just try to get our characters into impossible situations from which we couldn't figure, you know, a way out for them. And then the challenge of the next episode would be to sit down and go, okay, they're in an impossible situation. Now we have to come up with something clever. Wow. So they, you know, they would just challenge them. So, like, they wouldn't necessarily know in advance how to solve the problem, which is why all of the problems seem so unsolvable because mm. they didn't know. And, that is, you know. That's pretty incredible. So they really put themselves in the, they intentionally put themselves in a bind. Yeah, yeah, which I thought was kind of a great way to to do it. And um, when we did uh, Arrested Development uh, season four, um, oh, we're going to get to was... that. Don't worry, we're getting oh, back okay. to well, Arrested right, Development. Okay, we'll get to it. Because um... that's I, that's all. There's a whole thing there that I want to oh, get into. Oh, oh, oh wait, <laughs> yeah, you hold off to that. Hold off on that thought for a second. Um, it's funny. Another weird Louis Louis C.K. reference is the reason why he got so popular and so big over the last few years is that. He would start opening with his closing bit. He would open with his strongest stuff and okay. then screw himself. So he yeah. had to up, you know, he had to, to to up his game by the time the set ended because he had nothing else to close with. So all of his stuff got better. So that's what well, you're saying. That's what they did in, in uh, break in Breaking break, Bad. That, yeah, that's and, amazing. And, and Louis C.K. is amazing. I mean, he, you know, he's the only guy I know of that seems to, you know, have an entirely new set every year. You know, usually does, comedians. Yeah. You know, they work up a set and then it's kind of their go to thing and all of that. But he just he's constantly throwing out his best material and and creating new stuff, which is amazing. Yeah. Standard comic will drop like 20 percent a year and then they'll have a new set every five or something. But, yeah, he uh, he starts from scratch whenever he does a a special, which is amazing. And I think it's something now that's becoming a comedy trend. He's sort of been the the trendsetter in that way because there's a lot of guys that are starting to do that now. So, yeah, you got to keep up. Yeah. So, all right. So you're in NYU. You're yep. um, at at that point. Did you know you wanted to be a writer, or were you just thinking I wanted to be in the in the film world somewhere? Well, I, yeah, I pretty much knew I wanted to be a writer. I had always written. I wrote a lot in uh, high school, um, and so you know, and I liked directing a little bit too. But really, writing was my um, focus. And so, you know, I, I wrote a. Uh, uh, a screenplay while I was at NYU called Johnny Zombie. And it was this uh, zombie comedy. And, and you know, everybody's always, you know, you, you write stuff and you try to get it going. And I had, um, I showed it to a friend of mine, this guy, Adam Marcus, who was best friends with another guy who turned out to be the son of producer Sean Cunningham, who directed uh, Friday the 13th and uh, a ton of movies. He, he was a, a big producer, a big like horror producer. Um, and he uh, was given the screenplay and read it and loved it and uh, took it to Disney. Um, and Disney bought it and, and it was made into a movie called My Boyfriend's Back hmm. uh, later. But, you know, so... Um, what, what, hold on. Yeah. Let me ask you some of the technical side. What, what is sure. what is writing a screen? You're looking at a blank piece of paper. Right. Is it the kind of thing where you have to say, 
camera cuts to blah 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 scene? Like, are you writing the actual script, or what is yeah. what is writing a screenplay in that respect? Well, you don't usually put in camera movements unless there's a, a specific camera movement that you want to see to reveal something or to tell a, a particular part of the story. So you, you usually don't, um, you know, put in the camera movements. What you put in are uh, you put in what's called action lines, which sort of describe exactly what we're seeing on screen. Mm. Then, of course, there's dialogue, um, and you know, uh, there are a, a few sort of like general rules. One, like you typically would not put in an action line something that you can't see on screen. You know, you wouldn't put like necessarily a character's mental state, something they're thinking about. You know, if you can't see it in a movie, you shouldn't really cheat and put it in an action line. So, you know, because there has to be some visual way to express uh, information. So, you know, you, you begin to learn to do that. Um, uh, dialogue is its own kind of quirky thing. You know, you, you work hard to try to make it conversational. And then there's slug lines, which, um, you know, basically every scene you put in a, a slug line in all caps that lets everybody know where that scene takes place and that's just kind of the general format of a, of a screenplay hmm. so if you were going to open a, a, a scene uh like it's the first kind of take me through like two or three lines of like something you might write for well a, a movie like that well, like if I were so I if I were writing the scene of what we're doing right now, yeah. you know, I would probably say, you know, it would say something like interior dean's office day. Uh, dean sits at a desk in front of a microphone. Um, in front of him is a computer screen that reveals uh, a picture of Michael O'Neill, who he's speaking to, and then it might say dean dialogue, and then it would be whatever I'm Got saying. It. Oh, so, cool. You know, something like that. That's that's kind of how it usually lays out. And did you was there somewhere along the lines that you said this is a this is a thing and this is something I want to do? Yeah, uh, I, I mean I was just there a you know trigger for you? I just always loved movies. Um you know, I really wanted to be part of uh the movie industry and and I'd always loved writing. So it seemed like a logical way in. The the trick was like, you know, how do you get there from here? I mean, you know, how do you go from sort of you know, writing in a dorm room to uh, shooting a movie, you know, and, and, and that, and it, you know, that seemed like a pretty big hill to climb. I didn't quite know how to do it. And I don't think anybody really knew how to do it, you know, because everybody's way in seems to be a little bit different, but, um, but I knew it was something I wanted to do. It was a goal. I just wasn't quite sure how to do it. When, when you write a, a movie and you've got it in your brain, it's going to go a certain way. When, when someone buys the rights to it, do you hand it over and have to walk away at that point? Yeah, it's really hard. It's that's the downside of movies to me. I, I eventually I moved away from movies for for that reason. But in you know with movies, um, movies are very director driven, and uh, so you you go in, you know, you you sit in your little hovel and you you know work passionately on something, and then you sell it. And then pretty quickly, you're not really part of the equation much anymore because then the machinery of movie making takes over. The director sort of takes over and then there are sets and actors and, and all of that. And you become a little bit disposable. And, and usually on a movie, um, there are often many writers who come on. So you may have started it, but somewhere along the way you get replaced. Another writer gets brought on to do a dialogue polish or whatever else you know they need to do. And often there's a, a, a whole succession of writers. And so um, – what starts often with you that, you know, is very personal to you, you know, you quickly become a little irre irrelevant to it after mm. a point. So um, I mean, you really got to hang your ego up at the door at that point. 
Yeah, you really have to because you, you just, you know, at that point you have to kind of take a step back and go, okay, you know, I'm a professional. This is the way the business works. I have to just, you know, right. kind, kind of accept it. So I'm um, sure it goes. I'm sure. I mean, I've heard the whole process of notes, which is when people give you feedback on things and change things. And then people that punch things up, which is, you know, whatever, making it funnier yep. or whatever. So you at some point are you even around the, the a movie set at that point or have you almost never on? they, almost, they never. almost never want a writer to be on the movie set i mean occasionally if there's if the writer is friends with the star or something like that and it's a comedy then maybe the the star might want the writer around to kind of pitch extra jokes or something like that mm. but it's rare that you know on a movie particularly a big movie that the the writer would be on set because you know nobody quite knows Nobody knows what to do with you on set. You know, it's like because they kind of look at you and it's like your, your job is already done. So right. they don't know why you're there, you know. So um, right. uh, and, and, and it's, it is a little tough because you kind of like you felt so much a part of the process and it's so much your baby. And then when the fun stuff starts to happen, nobody wants you. you know? Right. So. Have you, uh, it, it, you it has to have happened where you've you've written something, you were super proud of it. And then by the time it was finished, you were like, please don't put my name on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it, it's a lot of times it's kind of hard because the the finished movie is never what you imagined it would be, and sometimes it's better. I mean, you know, there there are cases where you look at something and you're like, "Geez, they did it in a way that I wouldn't have thought." It's much better, and then other times it you know doesn't come out the way that you had hoped it would, and, and that can be tough. But that's also kind of part of you realize, you know, if you want to um, if you want to be fully creatively in charge. Go write books um, because then, right. you know, then you're fully in charge. But movies are, you know, by nature, a, a collaborative thing. And so you have to just kind of, you know, if, if you're going to take credit for, you know, the great things that people come up with that make you look better, then you also have to kind of accept when, you know, stuff doesn't look the way that you wanted it to. So, so when you finish the script and someone like Disney buys it, is it the kind of thing where they just go, here's a, here's a couple million bucks. Thanks for the script. Or is it? You get a certain amount of points in the back end when it comes out, or how does the finance work of, of well, the industry? You pretty much never get points. Um, you know, they they rarely give that. They rarely give points out. I mean, it, it's it used to be that if you were a big star, you know, if you were Schwarzenegger or something like that, you would get um, uh, you would get gross points in in a movie and in success. You know, you would you would make uh, a lot of money that way. But you really don't like as a as a screenwriter, you really virtually never um, get points in the movie. You get a paycheck and sometimes a, a good paycheck. Um, however, if you create a TV show, uh, you usually get some points in the TV show so that in success down the road, if it goes into syndication and there's money and all of that, then you can actually see extra money, but mm. not so much in movies. All right. Well, so you, you, you went through there and you ended up getting um, that they bought that movie and then you actually ended up working on one of the Friday the 13th movies, which is kind of fun, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, what happened was um, – you know, Sean Cunningham had uh, uh, brought this movie to Disney, so um, I was going to do that. And then he said, "Why don't?" Because at the time I was living in Hoboken, New Jersey, and he said, "I think you should move out to Los Angeles, and you can work for me for two years. I'll put you on salary. I'll give you a weekly paycheck, and you can just write for me whatever you know I need written." So. Huh. You know, that seemed like a pretty good deal to me. Cause Is that I, a pretty I, dream gig as a kid oh, coming out of NYU? Oh, my God. I mean, I was young. I was 22, 23, yeah. something like that. And again, I was living in Hoboken, New Jersey with like three other roommates, the you know. So he was saying, move to Los Angeles and I'll put you on salary and you'll write movies. So that what, was pretty exciting. What exit exciting. was so, that, Dean? What exit was that? What's that? What exit? In Jersey. Oh, uh, well, it wasn't an exit because... Uh, was it, um, it wasn't on the, it wasn't I, on the turnpike? I used the PATH train. 
Oh, so um, so you know, I, I would just go back and forth because I didn't really go anywhere else in Jersey. I would go back and forth between Manhattan and <laughs> right. uh, Hoboken, and Hoboken is connected to uh, Manhattan by the PATH train, which goes under the river. Just to provide context for our listeners, uh, in Jersey, there's a there's a, a, a there's a turnpike that runs all the way through the city, and people ba- basically can identify what part of the state you're from based on what exit you live near of that turnpike. So whenever you hear anyone from Jersey, they're like, what exit? And you're like, oh, 46. You're like, oh, yeah, my, my grandmother lives at uh, 49. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was, uh, this was just the path train. That's all I ever took. Yeah. But, um, um, so, you know, basically I, I said, that sounds like a great deal. So I put all of my stuff in a U-Haul and I drove uh, cross country um, with some friends of mine uh, to move to Los Angeles and had, you know, some adventures along the way. We, we drove through um, Austin, Texas, and mm-hmm. I had never um, really driven a U-Haul before. So, or really any kind of a truck. And so I kind of forgot that there's a giant overhang you know, above you. In a <laughs> and uh, we were pulling into a motel for the night. Um, and again, I completely forgot about it. And I ran smack into the the sort of, uh, uh, you know, overhang right. that uh, was the in hotel front of the hotel. One. Yeah. And I, I ripped it off the motel. It, <laughs> it, it collapsed on top of the U-Haul and was a giant problem. I mean, it was like this huge, heavy thing. Luckily, thank God, it didn't fall on anybody. There was nobody under there. But they ended up having to bring a crane out. Like, people couldn't get in or out of of, uh, parking crap. lot because it was the only way in or out people it was it was a problem i've, I've done <laughs> but, uh, that with a, a mountain bike on my roof uh to my garage oh did you yeah yeah but did uh, you destroy it i did yeah it didn't work out well for the bike um but i eventually did get out to uh los angeles and and i started that job and while i was there um sean was in pre-production on friday the 13th part nine and there was a um a writer that was uh on it who you know had uh, i guess was working on a draft and sean had used a bunch of his own money to um uh to get into pre-production on uh the movie and he needed to i think the draft came in on a thursday and he needed to on monday deliver the script to new line uh that was the studio for the movie and if they greenlit the movie then they were going to give him all the money to make the movie and if they didn't like the script and didn't greenlight it then they weren't going to make it and then sean would have been out all the money that he had spent to get into pre-production so there was a lot of pressure on this and that script came in and it wasn't uh, it wasn't universally loved and i was uh working there and so sean turned to me and he said okay you have to rewrite the script he said you know you have three days you have to completely rewrite it although you have to keep certain elements of it uh because they were in pre-production so they had sequences that they were already working on so it was essentially like keeping those sequences but connecting the dots between everything and you know he said you have to write a script that we can get a green light on on monday so that's what i did so i spent you know all weekend uh, working on a, a rewrite of that script and it went in and they did they did eventually green light it um but that's how i ended up working on it it was a really weird i mean i just sort of fell into it and that was early on uh two, two things about that one when, when someone i'm always curious about this because you, you know you look at you know blah 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 part 15 right whatever yeah. it is and yeah. you think who's making these movies like why would they why are they still making this movie how is he still alive right how is right how is, yeah, exactly. how is jason Voorhees still running around and do you um i mean clearly someone has to be making money on it or they wouldn't make it right is it yeah. always going to be profitable? I can't, can it be profitable? Or do you shoot it in such a way that if it's low budget enough that you can you can always make a couple of pennies it's, out of it? It's kind of that. I mean, you know, as long as 
they keep the budgets way down. Um, you know, with those sort of brand name movies, they, they can pretty much rely on there's going to be enough people that are going to come check it out that if they keep the budgets cheap, you know, they'll make some money. They're not going to make a fortune, but they'll make some money. And now, you know, n- now they're re- rebooting all of those uh, franchises and the budgets have gone up substantially and they look a lot better. They're spending more money on them and all that. But during that period of time, the goal was, you know, spend very little on it, keep the budgets real low and, you know, Make a profit, and that's why you know that's why you saw so many sequels because it was just one of the few, I guess, reliable ways to make money in the movie mm. industry. I wonder if it's because of shows like um, uh, Battle, the new version of Battlestar Galactica comes to mind for me. Yeah, it was such a film-like uh, TV show; like it was so yeah. well done. From it was a terrific production and, and, standpoint. And that didn't seem like something that was going to be terrific. Like no, Galactica was so kind of hokey, the original and all that. And then yeah. you know. I heard they were going to reboot it. I was like, hey, that's, that can't be good. But boy, it <laughs> right. really was good. It was a phenomenal show. And I, right. again, I wasn't I, 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 overall a huge sci-fi nerd, um, but really, really well done. It just it was one of those things where you saw a great show that just happened to be based uh, in a sci-fi setting. Yeah, it was terrific. But it was, really you know, good. but but I wonder if because of that, because of some of the sequences they used and some of the, uh, I mean, it was such a, a, like I said, a film, and especially the special effects were phenomenal. I wonder if that raised the bar of, you know, if this is what TV's bringing right now, then what do we have yeah. to do with a movie? Well, I, I think it did. And, and you know, I, I remember the thing that was most striking to me watching the effects in the Battlestar Galactica reboot was that, you know, the space battles and all that stuff had a kind of a documentary feel. Like it almost looked like, you know, ships yeah. were whizzing around and yes. the camera was trying to keep up with them. Yes. lose them in the frame and all that. And it was such a kind of a cool way to shoot it. And, um you know, I, I just boy, I, I was I was a big fan. Let me let me ask before we jump into the rest. Here, I'm I'm curious. I've watched a few shows in the last. Uh, I only like the good stuff. People are like, oh, you should be watching blah blah blah. And I'm like, that show's right. awful. I'm not going to spend any time on that. Right. I, mean, I'm just, I just got done with Breaking Bad. I just watched The West Wing. That was sure. phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I love uh, Californication, which is what all I know, by the way, about Hollywood writing is okay. Uh, is from, what you learn from, on Californication is from Hank Moody. That's uh, <laughs> that's what I know. And um, and then I think from a dialogue standpoint, I think Californication is phenomenal. I think uh, yeah. House of Lies is phenomenal. Yeah. It's terrific. Yeah. What What are your? Um, can you look back on the last you know few years on some of the shows that you think, wow, that was a that was a fantastically well written or well dialogued kind of show. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the shows that I gravitate to, you know, we've talked a lot about Breaking Bad. I mean, Breaking Bad was probably my favorite. Um, yeah. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Sure. I'm a big fantasy guy, so I love uh, I love Game of Thrones. Um, I love Louie. I think oh, yeah. Louie's a you know a fantastic uh, half hour. Um, you know, I'm really liking Fargo right now. The the um, you know the the TV series on FX. It's only they've only had about three episodes of it, but um, I think it's terrific. Um, I tend to gravitate to those dramas. I like I like the sort of hour-long uh, uh, dramas in um, yeah. the Tudors. I was a big fan of the Tudors. You know, I, I like that sort of soapy stuff. Um, <laughs> I got so. a couple. I got a, a season and a half into that, and then I I fell off because um, I want to say something else came along that was better for me. It might have been Game of Thrones, actually. Might have been. Yeah, I, I love. I was watching it on so Netflix. That we're you know we're back into the Game of Thrones season right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Who's your? Who's uh? Is Daenerys Targaryen your your your? She's my she's my character. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you, the the mother of dragons. You yeah. Have, I mean, how you she, know how, how are you? The Khaleesi. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. You've got to be excited about her. Um, you know, and uh, there, there was that scene last season where where it was the, it was her real coming. Uh, 
her her coming of age where she had just got the unsullied out and she right. was it the shot was from like ten thousand feet up and you yeah. just saw her walking like and her three dragons coming out and that's how the show ended. It was like yeah, it was wow. fantastic. You, you realize like it's, it's the first time you realize she's a force to be reckoned with now. How, so. how do you? By the way, just, just as an aside, how does no one else know about her yet? Like yeah, how, do, how do none of the other kingdoms know that she's building this giant army? You're and, right. with, and she has three dragons, and she's, she's marching dragons, their way. She's got an army. She's got all. And you're right. She seems to kind of exist in in her own little uh, universe. You know, I haven't read the books, so I, yeah, I'm no like, this is all really new to me. You know, I, I I don't know where it's going. I don't know what any of it means. I'm I'm following it as the TV go, you know show goes along. So yeah. Uh, yeah, that's how I am too. Yeah, but I love it anyway. So you go again. Uh, you were talking about the writing that you liked. Sorry. Uh, the writing, which writing? Yeah, you were digging into the writing that you that you happened to. Oh. Th- th- some of the shows that you thought were really well done. Yeah, just just a, you know, a, a lot of those. I'm watching House of Cards now, which I think is oh, great. Yeah. That's good. Um, That's really good. You know, Although, man, Netflix. what a what a dark second season that was. Uh, we're, I'm oh. still on the first season. Okay, so I won't give anything away. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It really. It, it, by the way, it may a bit remind you of Breaking Bad. I will, okay. I will, I will, I'll, I'll plant that seed. And you oh, well, tell me a, when you're finished. It's a tease. <laughs> yes. You tell me when you're finished if you if you if you see a little of that in there. Yeah. Um. You know, I was a huge Sopranos fan. Like everybody, oh, like yeah. Sopranos sort of changed the game for everybody. It did. Um, you know, so that was spectacular. Um, uh, were, were you a big The Wire guy? I know The Wire. Uh, that was a, a great one for me. I know. You know, everybody loves The Wire. I know it's amazing, and I really haven't seen it. Um, I, I know I need to sit down and watch my way through the whole series because it's it's. I, I know it's one of the great uh, shows yeah. of all time, and I just haven't seen it. Yeah, it was one of those. Um, yeah, it was one of those. So, um, actually, let me do this first. I got to do a little plug, if you don't mind. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> when's the last time you bought a domain name, Dean? Ever? Well, a lot, and actually, I buy them from GoDaddy. You do? I do. Oh, I genuinely you. do. The next time you, the next time you buy one from GoDaddy, Dean, yeah. um, I'd love for you to use the solo, the uh, promo code Solo two nine five at checkout. Get that domain name for just two dollars and ninety five cents. And once you, once you've done that, uh, you you've you've blown up that one super deal. You can actually get twenty five percent off all your new products using code Solo two five. So maybe you've got a great idea for a business and want to start selling your products or services online, or perhaps you are just a business owner looking for new customers. Um, maybe you're just interested in starting a personal website. No matter who you are, GoDaddy wants to help you kick ass online. Right now, GoDaddy is offering a .com domain for just two dollars and ninety five cents. It's go time, Dean. Start your website today. Visit GoDaddy.com and enter promo code SOLO295 to get your 295.com. Of course, some limitations apply. See website for details. Um, <clears throat> plug over for the day. So uh, are you a football fan, uh, NFL football fan at all? Um, I'm not a giant football fan. I like it when I watch it, but because L.A. doesn't have a team, I kind of fell out of the habit of watching it. When I lived on um, the East Coast, I was a Giants fan. Um, okay. And, you know, then I got out here, and it's, it's a little hard when you're not, you know, you don't have a local team that you're rooting for. Right, right. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Steelers fan planted in, uh, in, okay. uh, in, in San Diego, so I'm very far away from my team. But, but uh, Peyton Manning, who's the quarterback of the Denver Broncos currently, uh, to many, it will go down as the greatest quarterback of all time. 
And one of the things about his last couple of years is he has had weapon after he's had five guys to throw the ball to right. at any given time. He's just got weapons all over the place. And he's a guy that knows how to, to you know, disassemble a defense except for the Super Bowl and, um, <laughs> and, and get the ball to. And that's a big deal. So to have those kinds of arrows in your quiver. I think is is phenomenal. It's a, it's a it's an amazing place to be as a quarterback. You had a a, a chance. You had the opportunity to write dialogue for Jason Bateman, Portia de Rossi, Will Arnett, Michael Sarah, uh, David Cross, Jeffrey Tambor for crying out loud, Henry Wiggs, the Fonz, and Ron yeah. Howard, uh, Liza Minnelli, as a as a as a writer. Is, can you can you think of a more stocked armory than what you got to write for with Arrested Development? No, I mean you can't do better. Uh, you know, it, it's it's one of the all time great casts. Uh, they're all spectacular. They're all really different from each other. You know, it's it, people a lot of times will say, you know, who's the most fun to write for? And it's really it's very hard to pick because they're all very fun to write for and they're all really specific. And what's great about it is that you know that. Um, Whatever you write, they're going to deliver the very best version of it. Mm. So that gives you so much confidence because you're like, you know, um, because that's not always the case. And so, um, you know, you feel uh, you just feel really kind of ennobled, you know, when you sit down to write for them because, you know, they're going to make it great. Mm. I'm every easily I can think of uh, maybe just a couple of shows that are even in the echelon of how well developed the characters were on that show. Yeah, I mean, every like you said, every character was so unique and so nailed by that actor. Um, that had to I be mean, so. It, it, it helps so much when the characters are that specific because a lot of the times you'll run into something when, when you're writing for an ensemble. If you know, if the characters aren't super super defined, and often they're not. Um, uh, you know, you'll end up with like a line of dialogue that you want to, you, you know, some information that you want to get out and you realize ah, I could give it to anybody because everybody kind of sounds the same. And so you just go, ah, such and such hasn't had a line in a while. I'll put it in their mouth. Uh, <laughs> right, right. But with Arrested, you know, you, you don't do that because they're so specific. Like Job isn't going to say something that Michael would say, you know, so right. um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's great. It, I, it's, it's funny because as a, a designer, as a visual designer. It's a lot easier to design from within. Okay, here's the parameters that I'm. It's got to be th- these three colors. It's got to not have this, 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 and this, and it has to do this, this, and this. Yeah. So once you get those ideas, you go okay, and it makes it so much easier than if you're just looking at a blank sheet of paper. And I think that's probably the exact same correlation to to writing dialogue for a you know Michael Bluth or something. So tell me how you tell me how that all happened. How did you end up becoming a writer on Arrested Development? Well, um, I had uh, I'd been on a show called My Wife and Kids, which starred uh, Damon Wayans for um, for, I guess, four or five years. And uh, and it was a great time. I loved Damon. He was a, a friend of mine. I had written a movie called Major Pain um, a bunch yeah. of years ago. And that's that's where I met Damon. And um, is so he, is he a good guy? Should I have him on the show? He's great. Okay. Oh, Damon, he's so funny. Would he's he do? Would he do it, or is he was he is he too highfalutin? You think he might do it? I'll, I'll right. ask him. Right. I, I don't know. He we'll might put do a it. word out. I'll, we'll uh, yeah, I'll run it by him. I'll see if he feels like doing <laughs> it. But he's a great guest. He'd be he'd be a lot of fun. But okay. um, so that show had gotten canceled, and at that point, Arrested had been on the air for uh, two seasons. They'd completed season two. 
And, um, and I couldn't go on to it because I had another job. But um, when my wife and kids got canceled, Mitch Hurwitz, who created the show and runs it, um, called me up and said, look, you're available now. Will you come do Arrested? And I said, yeah, God, I would you know, love to. So, but By the um, way, at that time, Arrested was not this huge hit cult favorite yet. No, I mean, it, it, you know, first of all, nobody was really watching it. It had, you know, a, a very small viewership. What it was was a big critical hit. It had won Emmys. It was, you know, it, it was really admired, but, uh, you know, just it didn't have a lot of viewers. And so, um, so Mitch asked me to come on to it. And in, in, in season three, what he primarily wanted me to do was run the set. Um, I mean, I did a bunch of writing on the show, but uh, often during the day, I would go be in charge of the actual shooting of the of the show on set, um, which I had done a lot. I did a lot of that on my wife and kids and, and all of that. So that was intimidating because it was this, you know, as you said, the sort of storied cast. It had won all of these Emmys. You know, it was a bit of a machine, you know, at that point. And I was the new guy, you know, and I had to kind of go onto the set and... Um, and make sure that we were getting the, the footage and performances and all of that that uh, Mitch wanted. Um, and it was it was scary. I mean, it was intimidating. You know, walking. I didn't know any of them. You know, meeting Jeffrey Tambor for the first time, and and you know, trying to trying to tell him, you know, uh, give him some direction or ask him to do something differently was spooky because you know he's an intimidating guy. And the whole cast, you know, they're all really nice, but you know, just just they're, but they're the big pros. I mean, they're pros. Yeah. And you're a new guy. And That's wait, right. doesn't that make you a director then at that point? No, there's always a director uh, on set. And, um, you know, when you're running a set, you're kind of ultimately responsible for making sure that what's shot um, is is what you want. So that because you don't want to get in, in the editing room and then have a bunch of footage that doesn't quite work. And so a lot of times the way it works in television is that very often the directors are sort of guns for hire. Like they'll direct lots of different shows over the course of uh, the season. So they may come on. It may be the very first time that they've directed an Arrested Development. So they, they wouldn't necessarily know um, sort of the shorthand of the show or, or, you know, that kind of stuff. So your job when you're running the set is to make sure to essentially help the director and let them know, you know, we need to get this shot. This isn't, you know, we have a dead cross here. We don't want to do that. We don't, you know, on this show, we do this, this, and this. Mm. And so, you know, and that way, and, and it's just a, another set of eyes on the material. Um, so that hopefully when you get in the, the editing room, you have the, the footage that, uh, that you need. Is, is that the same thing as a showrunner or is that something else? Well, the showrunner sometimes will run a set, um, uh, but if the in in the case of Arrested, Mitch Hurwitz is the showrunner, and so that, um, he's the but, guy. In, a showrunner, by the way, is the, uh, this is a term I didn't know about until yeah. a year ago. Um, but they're the kind of the guys in charge, right? Yeah, yeah. The they're they're um, oftentimes they're the creators of the show, although not always. You know, sometimes it, it, somebody will create a show and they'll run it for a season or two, and then they may move on or get fired or something, and then somebody comes on. You know, somebody else comes on to run it. Um, but yeah, they're often the creators, and they're ultimately the ones in charge. Um, and so on. You know, on Arrested, um, Mitch was the showrunner. He's very much the one in charge. Um, and but there are, are many many jobs that have to be performed. Um, and you know, not the least of which is somebody has to run the writer's room, which is, you know, a room filled with writers. And, and that's the, the that's really where you create the scripts. Somebody has to run the set so that you make sure that, you know, the, the, the shooting, you're getting the footage that you want. Somebody has to edit, um, you know, and that's going on all the time. So those three things are, are three sort of distinct jobs that often have to happen simultaneously because you're writing while, you know, they're shooting on set while the editors are editing. And so even though, you know, the, the showrunner is ultimately in charge of everything, they can't really 
literally be in three places at once. So, you know, you need, you need people to be responsible for where you're not. Hmm. Um, and so that's why, you know, occasionally Mitch would come to the set and he would, you know, take over and make things the way that he wanted. But when he wasn't there, then I would do it. Um, and then on season four, Mitch directed, um, uh, that he co-directed with Troy Miller um, the entire season. So then while the show was shooting, Mitch wasn't available to be in the writer's room because he was on set shooting. So I, I, in, in that season, I ran the writer's room. So, um, so oh, you just so you did of, it all. You did it all on that show. Well, I bounced around on different seasons. And then there's other people who do big, big, big stuff there. Like Jim Vallely is Mitch Hurwitz's uh, writing partner. And so he's a, you know, a major giant voice on the show. So, you know, and, and on all shows, particularly successful shows, there's, um, you usually have to have a fairly deep bench of people that are, you know, you're talking about weapons before, but, you know, of, of people that are capable of doing these different jobs just because there are too many jobs for one person to do. Hmm. Well, I, I have to say that, that the... Pre, uh, prior to the end of Breaking Bad, which was the again the, the, how they wrapped all of these arcs in really weird ways, the job you guys did on this most recent fully released season of Arrested Development, the one that was released on Netflix in 2013 right. um, as a whole, I was flummoxed with how complicated that must have been <laughs> to write. Because to, to, to summarize for people, there's all these amazing, unique characters on the show. They basically told a single story from nine different perspectives. Yeah, eight or nine. Eight or nine, different, yeah. same exact day from each actor's perspective. And the, the complexity of shooting that thing and writing for it is mind-boggling to me. I can't... So, Please. I never in a million years thought I'd be able to actually ask one of the guys that wrote this. Um, <laughs> well, it, how it, the it, F did you do that? Like, I that's mean, insane it, to me. It was easily the most complicated thing that I or probably anybody on the writing staff ever tackled. And, and I'm sure Mitch Hurwitz as well. Um, you know, it, it was the design of the show was a little bit dictated by the fact that we didn't have a lot of actor availability because, you know, during the first three seasons, you know, uh, the actors were under contract and, and, um, and, you know, they weren't all sort of super famous at that time. But mm-hmm. in the intervening years after the show got canceled at the end of season three, they all became kind of famous. And, you know, and they had movies and other TV shows. You know, Tony Hale was on Veep. Um, you know, everybody had kind of scattered. And it was really hard to get everybody back together again because they were mm-hmm. all really busy. And so we, we often on the show, only had a particular actor for a couple of weeks um, and we never had them all you know at the together at the same time so whereas the original three seasons were very much an ensemble show where you know every actor's in every episode we couldn't do that in uh, season four so we had to kind of redesign that season and so then it, it the solution to that was um, to focus each episode on a different character. So episodes one and two were Michael one and two. And then, you know, so each episode was was based around a different character because that's when we would have that actor available, you know, to shoot. And then we would put in as many other characters, you know, as we could um, into the, the different episodes, but it was restricted. Hmm. So th- that sort of determined, you know, how we plotted the show. And, and then we um, uh, were trying to figure out, like, you know, even though... All the characters uh, weren't in all the episodes. You know, how 
would it how could you make it feel like they were you know involved in each other's stories and so the way that we chose to do it was um, we essentially picked what was, I guess, about a two-week period um, you know, in the lives of the characters. There was a, a main period of about two weeks where um, we were telling multiple stories that occurred during that two-week period um, where all of the characters would go drift in and out of each other's stories. And so we would often show the same scene over and over across multiple episodes from different characters' points of view. So, you know, you might be in a Coast Guard station, and in episode one, you're focusing on Michael, you know, and and in his story. And then in the background, you see stuff happening. There's a gurney going through. There's, you know, stuff happening. But you don't really notice it, you know, because you're focusing on Michael's story. But then when you get to a later episode, say Tobias or something, you'd go to that same scene, that same location, except now you're with Tobias. So you would then see, like, you know, what was going – what you previously saw going on in the background now you're now it's in the foreground now you're seeing what happened there and in the background of that you see michael which you previously saw in an earlier episode Mm. so it was it was complex to put together and you know it's almost hard to describe but in the writer's room we had um you know there were four walls to the room and so at the edge of one wall we had going from top to bottom along the wall was a card that had the name of each character, and that sort of denoted each episode of the show. And then going out from the right to the, of each card all the way around the room would be um, uh, note cards that would lay out every single scene that was in that particular character, particular character's episode. And then going up and down... We how, put, how many scenes are in an episode? Just do I have a, a number? Well, on Arrested, there were a lot. There yeah. were, you know, usually I guess around forty or fifty, but that's okay. that's a ton. Most most shows on a half hour don't really have that many. But yeah. um, and then all these things had to happen in a timeline. So then we would put, um, a, you know, going um, uh, vertically. Each day. So it's Monday, it's Tuesday, it's all that. So all of the scenes that happened across all of the episodes that occurred on, say, Monday would appear in that. Right. And then on top of that, often, like I mentioned, we would have, you know, the same scene would appear in different episodes from different points of view. So then we would take yarn and we would connect the, <laughs> we would connect the different um, note cards that all were from the same scene so that you could just look at the yarn and see the different note cards that it went to and know that that was all the same scene on the same day. So you, that means you had to shoot three, like, so you'd see one that had three yarns coming in and you knew that you had to shoot that from three different perspectives. That's right. Yeah. And so it was super complicated, you know, and it was really fun as a challenge and a puzzle and, and, you know, uh, all of that, but it was, it it was complicated and it, it required, it required, you know, the effort of a lot of people to try to keep all that stuff straight. I've never seen anything like that. And I think it was the first of its kind, unless there was an idea that somebody had that, they, they were they were using it before. Have, have you seen that before in writing? Not not to that extent. Um, you know, because the whole the whole thing was designed around it, and and it was meant to be really rewatchable. Like what we had found earlier was that um, you know people loved to rewatch the the arrested, and when they would go back and rewatch them, a lot of times they would catch details that um, that they hadn't noticed on the first go round, and so we became kind of aware of that, and then started writing to it in the earlier seasons, like in season three. Um, 
uh, we had a whole um, uh, sequence in uh, We Britain, and um, and there was uh, there was the legend of the Poppins, which was this Mary Poppins doll that uh, that you know would swing down in We Britain, and you know when the camera went by it, there was like a little plaque on uh, the wall that sort of you know said the legend of the Poppins, and the camera just sort of goes right by it, like you don't stop on it and, and, you know, read it. Um, but we spent a lot of time writing that plaque because we realized that, you know, people at home would like to watch stuff and then they would freeze frame things and then they'd look at things. And so we said, okay, let's really write that plaque because, you know, we think that there will be some people that will have fun freezing on it and then they'll read it and then, you know, it'll be a little bonus. So, so, well, you know, hold we... on. So you did the, you, the other thing you did that made me laugh out loud, <clears throat> I think that you did this on purpose, uh-huh. was one of the early episodes of the last season. Um, it, it popped up like property of blah, blah, blah. Like someone was, someone oh, had illegally. Pro? What's that? Scene Stealer Pro? Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. someone, someone had, uh, someone had illegally, you know, copied <laughs> the, the, the promo copy of it or whatever. That was hilarious. Yeah, Mitch put that in in editing. That, we didn't even have that scripted. That was something that Mitch came up with That was later. really funny. That was a yeah, very was. funny move. Um, so, you know, once we realized that um, people like to rewatch the episodes, and then in season four, we designed the whole season basically around rewatchability so that, hmm. so that the first time that you watch the season – um, you, you only have a little bit of information, like you, you gain information as the season goes along. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the first time you're watching it, you don't realize what's really going on because what you think is happening is not what's really happening. So then by the time you get to the end of the season, you, you understand all the subtext and, and, you know, everything that's going on so that then the hope was you would then, if you wanted to be able to rewatch the season now, knowing everything and have a different experience watching it. So yeah, I didn't it, realize it until about episode four or five, what yeah. you were doing. Like I didn't yeah. get it. Cause it's so, it was so random. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I remember that I was, I was, uh, we were, I was at a party. We, there, there was watching parties all over the world right. for this thing. It was such a big deal. Um, and we got a few episodes cause they're half hour. You burn through them. And yeah. We were like episode four or five. And I finally caught something that was in a previous episode, you know, and I said, I remember sitting, I just sort of collapsed on the couch and I was like, no way are you doing this. And that's when I really, that's when the gravitas of how complicated this thing was about to get really, I was like, I can't believe they're doing this. And I remember telling everybody, I paused and I was like, do you realize what they're doing right here? And they, and then I told them, they're like, no way. And then we all kind of got it. And that's when, that's when it, you know, went to that next level. Well, it, you know, it's, it's all credit to Mitch Hurwitz and Ted Sarandos, who is in charge of a uh, content at Netflix. I mean, it was, it was a giant choice to, to, to take a shot at doing something so complicated. And Mitch really wanted to do it. He, you know, had it in his head to do it. Um, and Ted fully embraced it at Netflix. And so it was like, and, you know, we would never have been able to do that, I think, or it would have been tough on sort of regular television just because it was so kind of out there. But, you know, Netflix just, um, uh, they were still fairly new. I I think they'd only produced two or three original shows at that point. And they just really, you know, wanted to um, uh, break outside the box. And and so, you know, I just have to give those guys all the credit because it was, you know, it was a big swing to be able to do that stuff. And then we worked really hard to try to, you know, articulate it. Mm. Yeah. So what was it like for you to be part of this? Because I think the the 
you got onto a show that had critical acclaim but didn't have you know a huge public thing. By the time the Netflix thing came out, it was a yeah. it was massive. It was a huge yeah. launch. It was a totally different experience because, you know, nobody was paying attention during the first three seasons, really. I mean, not in any big way. And I, I think largely people found it through Netflix because, you know, after it got canceled, um, the episodes appeared on Netflix. And that's when a lot of people just started kind of binge watching seasons. And that's how, you know, that's how a lot of people found it. So that by the time we got to season four, um, you know, there was a, a real appetite for it, you know, and people were really, really excited about it. But we had not really had that experience on the earlier seasons. And, and you know, geez, it got canceled because of low ratings. So um, so that uh, um, it, it's it's more fun to be a hit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. So what was so what was the uh, what was launch day like for you? Um, oddly enough, on launch day, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I was going to the Phoenix Comic Con, where I go every year. I'm going this year. I'm going. I'll be there at the end of uh, beginning of June, and um, and so uh, it was like midnight on Saturday or Friday or wh- whatever night that I was there um, when the thing launched, and everybody was excited about it. Everybody was talking about it, and everybody kept checking their iPhones to see, you know, did did it did it launch? Did right, it launch? Right, right. You know, because it was midnight, and then suddenly they were all available. And oh, and I remember very specifically being in a bar at the hotel that um, I was staying at, and suddenly it was all available, and then people—that's all people wanted to talk about. Oh. You, know, you can see them now, and it was crazy for me because I sat there going. Geez, I did this. This is right, this right. What I'm working on, and now it's you know now people can can watch it. Now it's a thing. That must have, that must have been such a proud moment. It was. It was really fun. I wanted to call somebody. <laughs> right. Know? It was really fun. Do you uh, have you been down to San Diego Comic Con to the the mothership? I have, but not in a lot of years because it's gotten so big and so crazy yeah. that it's just – it's almost not fun for me anymore just because it's like – it's just so crowded. But um, it's been probably 10, 10 or so years since yeah. uh, I've been to it. But I like Comic-Cons. I mean I loved – I love going to Phoenix. I, I you know, I, I actually would like to do more of them. I just don't think to do it a lot. But, right. Uh, but yeah, I, I like Comic Con. I'm sure, and I'm sure uh, you could. I'm sure they would probably have you speaking or something like that, just to be uh, part because it's such a Comic Con has turned into such a pop culture show yeah. versus a comic show now. Yeah, and I snuck in last year. Um, How'd you like uh, it? Well, I'm I I haven't been a comic guy, uh, but I. But because of the pop culture stuff, like I was a Dexter fan and, you know, BSG, the Battlestar Galactica. So, like, there was some stuff around that I really dug. But for me, it was most fascinating just watching, just being part of that culture and community and just seeing the, you know, it was cool. I like I really enjoyed that. Um, But I I would like it's very difficult to get tickets. Um, It's a very hard get. And and try getting a hotel room. (laughs) If you don't book it early in San Diego, you're 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 in trouble. Well, if you want to come down, you can crash in my place. I live. Oh, that's right. You live there. I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm glad we had this. Hey, if you can if you can score good tickets, I will give a place to live. That's that's the deal. Um, This could this could work out. All right, because you know what I was going to say is I I literally uh, snuck in last year, and that doesn't give you a lot of rights to do anything. All I could really do is walk around the floor and right. I, I decided like i almost feel like this about vegas as well i when i go to comic-con again i want to do it in the super pimp vip way like i want sure. the good badge that allows me to go and go to some of the the panels and and skip the lines and all those kinds of things i don't know if i would want to do it and be part of the masses yeah it's it's uh it's more fun to do that i mean it's like you know it's good to have like front of the line passes, like you know. You, you go to, <laughs> right. It's like you go to Disney. It's Disney, like in the right. fast pass. You have know? you done that? Have you done the the fast pass at Disney? 
Um, yeah, yeah, because uh, you know, we, we go a lot. We go to Disneyland, you know, probably three times a year because I, I have kids, and um, you know, you really learn how to work the fast pass system because. Uh, uh, you know, you really have to kind of plan out your day, schedule out your day. But uh, how do you we're, do we're pretty it? good at it. How do you actually do that? Do you, have to, do you have to hire the concierge kind of thing? Is that how it works? Oh, no, no. With FastPass at Disney, it, it's not a VIP thing. It's something that everybody can do. And so basically what happens is um, at, any, uh, at any given time, each person can get a single FastPass to – a particular ride and then it allows you to go pretty close to the front of that ride but you can only have one at a time so what happens is you you'll go get one and then it'll say on the ticket you know you this is available for use between say three and four in the afternoon so then you have to go back to that ride at that particular time and then you know you can uh you can use it but it means you have to kind of plan out your day because you want to get a fast pass that might not be usable for an hour so in the hour before then you want to go on a different ride where you have to wait in line and then you go to the other ride where you get a fast it's a whole thing right Right, right. Have you done the? Have you ever been part of the the rich guy concierge version? Um, I did that once, and uh, they don't get you to the front of the line. Oh, really? <laughs> you you walk around with a you know with a very nice Disney person dressed in a little Disney outfit, and they're really nice to you, and they they they'll tell you about the history of Disney, and they'll make suggestions and all that, and then you get up to Space Mountain, and you're like, so can we go to the head of the line? And they say, oh no, no, we have to we have to wait in line. <laughs> and so oh, that's and, ridiculous. And, uh, and I was kind of like, I was looking at my wife going, why did we get the Disney person? Yeah, like, didn't we pay a couple grand for this? Yeah, like, what was the deal? Huh. Yeah. I thought that was the deal, is that you got the full-on VIP concierge I deal. I think it is for celebrities. I think if, like, you're a big recognizable celebrity, you get to do that stuff, but uh-huh. not, not if you're a writer. So you mentioned you have kids. You've just written a, a number of uh, kids' books. That's yeah. Your, that's your, uh, your, your, next, your next thing. Well, yeah, after um, Arrested had gotten canceled, um, I was beat. You know, everybody – it's just – it was an exhausting show to work on. And it was just kind of demoralizing that it got canceled. So I really wanted to kind of retreat a little bit. And I decided to write a book. Um, you know, I had always wanted to – I'm a big fantasy guy. You know, we were talking about Game of Thrones and all that. Um, so I had an idea for sort of a contemporary fantasy series that uh, I wanted to write for kids kind of like 8 to sort of 13-ish. Um, so I wrote, I just sat down and I wrote the first book in the series and, um, ended up, uh, selling it to, well, actually Universal bought the rights to it for a movie. And then I ended up selling the series as a trilogy to HarperCollins. And so I spent the next two years really writing that trilogy and then traveling the country and going to schools and sort of supporting it and promoting it. And I had a great time doing it because, you know, I would go to, you know, big auditoriums, three or 400 kids in, you know, auditorium. And I had a whole little presentation. And so, you know, I would do that. And then I'd signed books and stuff. And that was fun. And I did that, the uh, series called Nightmare Academy. Um, And I did that. And then after about two years, I'd finished the trilogy and I was kind of looking around going, geez, I miss, I miss the circus. You know, I miss sort of being on a show and being around people and all that because, you know, novel writing is very sort of solitary. So, um, and then my buddy, uh, Don Rio, who ran, uh, my wife and kids called me up and said that he was about to jump on another show. And was I ready to come back and would I join him? And so, um, and it just kind of came at the right time. I was really kind of looking to get back into it. So, um, so I did that. But yeah, I did. I took a couple of years to write those books and I really got the, um, the fever for book writing. I, I loved book writing. And then, um, uh, and then it wasn't until I was talking to Vinny uh, Tortorich, um, you know, who I had hired as a personal trainer. Hmm. When I was a, a bit heavier and, uh, you know, I was working with him. And, you know, as I would talk to him, 
I realized that he had a great story. Like, first of all, he's really funny. I mean, you've had him on the show. So, you know, you see he's really funny. He's got a really, like, unique sort of point of view. Um, and uh, and he had this great life story, which he probably went into on the show. But he, you know, was gearing up to do this ultra event, uh, yeah. the Furnace Creek 508. And then he found out he had leukemia. Um, and so he couldn't, you know, do the event. He had to go uh, uh, start uh, taking chemo. Um, he eventually got that into remission. And then the next year he did compete in the Furnace Creek 508 and he, he finished. And Michael, so he had this sort of great so story. Naughty. And um, I was talking to him and I said, we should do a book. We should um, we should write a book about you. Uh, you know, you're funny. And also, you know, I, I was kind of interested in um, it seemed like there was a big opening in the sort of world of fitness for R-rated, raunchy kind of fun fitness advice because, you know, fitness in general is usually so sort of granola crunchy. And um, and that's just not the way Vinny is. He's just, you know, this kind of like Italian guy who, you know, says it like it is. And so we just sat down and we wrote that book. And um, again, because I like doing things uh, you know, just I like to just do things. I would rather sit down and just put in the time and make something and then see what I can do with it later rather than go ask permission, you know, to make something. So we just sat down and we wrote the book and then sent it out to publishers and um, across the board, no one wanted it um, <laughs> because, you know, because and they had two reasons. One was nobody knew who Vinny was. You know, at the time, he didn't have a podcast. Um, he had a website. But if you went to his website, um, it said hacked by the devil and it had a cartoon devil face on it. So that was a problem. Um, so people just really didn't know who he was. And uh, we um, uh, tried, you know, we tried to get it set up somewhere. But, you know, they didn't feel it would sell. And then in addition to that, um, he uh, um, Vinny uh, wanted to, to keep the book pretty much the way it was. Like there were some publishers that said, we'll consider publishing it if you really change the book. Like they wanted what they called a, a prescriptive, which means, you know, essentially they wanted to, to be some version of, you know, lose 10, lose 10 pounds in 10 days, right. something like that. And this wasn't that. This was more of a memoir mixed with fitness advice, and our, and, and it, which was actually tough to figure out because, you know, I, I, he had such a great sort of personal story that I was trying to figure out what's the point of view on this book. And I finally realized um, – after I had read Kitchen Confidential, which is a brilliant book by Anthony Bourdain, that it could be kind of like that. It could be memoir mixed with, you know, um, with advice. And so, uh, so, and that's why we ended up calling it Fitness Confidential. So, um, so we kind of came to a crossroads where we were saying sort of, we can either completely change the book and potentially get it published traditionally, or we can just say no, um, keep it exactly the way we want it and publish it ourselves, which is something that I had never done and certainly Vinny had never done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided to kind of stick to our guns and publish it ourselves. And, and the, the idea behind that was that, um, uh, you know, we decided that if we were going to do that, the book was going to have to be, you know, of a quality across the board that would make it indistinguishable from a traditionally published book. So we, you know, really did it right. I hired an editor to edit the book. I hired a copy editor. You know, we booked, um, a, a, you know, photography session with the top photographer to take the cover picture. I hired a graphic designer for the cover. You know, it, it just, we, we really, you know, put the book together very professionally and, um, and published it and just to sort of see what happened. And it ended up being a big hit. I mean, it just very unexpectedly, it was, you know, this big successful book, which is still selling very well. And so, and that really, for me, opened up the, um, 
the door to the notion of self-publishing. And I just was kind of like, you don't really need publishing houses. The only thing that a publishing house offers at this point is to get your book into brick and mortar stores, which is basically Barnes and Noble. Right, um, right. You know, because that's the only big chain that that's left. And so, um, uh, but if you're willing to forego that, you can sell physical copies of the book, you know, paperbacks, hardcovers, if you want, you know, you can certainly sell all the eBooks, you know, Kindle iBooks and all of that. You can sell audiobook. Oh, we did an audio book, um, you know, where, that, where he uh, read it. What's that? Where he read it, which is great. Yeah, Vinny, Vinny read it and, you know, and it was tough for him to read it because he, even though, you know, he's terrific on his podcast, there he's just sort of speaking extemporaneously. But he wasn't initially like a great reader to just sit there and, and read it. And so we, we worked on it and he worked, you know, his butt off on the thing. Um, and now we found out not too long ago that this audiobook that killed Vinny to do um, just got nominated for an audio award for right. best audio book of the year in the uh, personal development category. It's Amazon's giant audio book uh, thing. So Vinny and I are flying to New York at the end of this month for this black tie award ceremony for this audio book. So anyway, it, it was, um, you know, we, we realized that you really could do every single thing that a publisher could do with the exception of being in Barnes and Noble. And, um, and so now that's what my focus is. I'm doing a lot of books now and I'm going to do them all that way because I, you know, I like being completely in control of it. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's so it's become kind of a whole other thing that I do now in maybe, addition to the TV. Maybe I should write a book. Maybe it's you time. Should. You really should because, you know, <laughs> it, it's the biggest thing. The, the one thing about self-publishing is that you have to have a platform to promote it because yeah. otherwise it's hard for people you know to find it because they can't go to a bookstore and just sort of see it on a shelf so you have to have a way to promote it and you've got this terrific podcast mm -hmm. you know you can let people you know know about it and and i would say yeah write it and self-publish it i'll, I'll mm -hmm. tell you how to do it it's it's you know it's fun to do it's a bit of work but it's uh it's i think where everything is, is going well i think i've got a story too because five years ago i had 14 dollars and my parents had just passed away so i think there was a there's a whole Redemption story that has happened over the last few years. Um, that's been kind of uh, quite a journey. So you should you you really should write it. I, I would really encourage you to do it. Well, we can talk about that when you're down here at Comic Con, and uh, sure, uh, we can <laughs> figure that sure, out. Sure, when I'm staying at your house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, I I hate to do it. I this is one of those conversations that I feel like I can go for another hour and a half. What's the what's the, what's your next step? You're you're writing some books. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things. This last season, um, I was uh, one of the executive producers on The Crazy Ones, which is the Robin Williams show on CBS. Oh, cool. Um, I Great. don't know if that's coming back. They haven't picked it up yet, and or, but they also haven't canceled it, so I don't, right. I don't quite know yet if we're continuing on that. But um, how's, how's Robin to work with? He's amazing. He's, oh, really? you know, he's the opposite of what you think he is. He's very quiet. He's very reserved. He's a super nice guy. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not manic and, um, right. he's, uh, he's He's just lovely. The whole cast is lovely. Sarah Michelle Geller mm -hmm. is, uh, on the show. She's wonderful. We, you know, the whole, the whole cast has been great. Do, do, um, do, do you, uh, do you have, uh, celeb friends that you hobnob with? Um, uh, much? Yeah, I mean, I guess, but I, you know, like Damon Wayans is still uh, a, a really good friend of mine. Um, we like to sometimes travel and do stuff. Uh, he's great, um, you know. And I know a lot of kind of celebrity just because I work with, I just work with a lot of people. But right, um, right. but yeah. I don't typically go hang out with you know celebrities. But yeah. um, so I may be doing that, and then I'm getting ready to publish uh, a new book uh, called Romance for Men. That's mm. uh, 
uh, a comedy. Uh, it's, it's a very funny book. And so that'll be coming out in June. Cool. And so there, there's a few things on the plate. Well, when that comes out in June, will you come back and we'll, we'll talk about Romance for Men? Oh, yeah. There's a lot to talk about with that book. So, yeah. One, yeah of the, I, uh, one of the things about this show is because I have this sort of co-host format, it's just – it's. I mean, you know, we had to get through background today. But when, it, when, when the time comes, when you have something to either, you know, talk about like your book or, you know, if you have the teaching gene. A lot of people have the teaching gene that are entrepreneurs yeah. or solopreneurs and they want to share, you know – there's probably things you can share about things you've learned over your career that would help people in all different facets of being a solopreneur. So I, I would love to do that. And in fact, I, I do like teaching. I taught for a, a semester at AFI, uh, American Film Institute, uh, you know, writing, and I, I loved it. I, I like teaching. Mm. So yeah, so that's if so if you want to come back whenever. I mean, we've had Vinny on a couple times now, and and uh, you know the last time was you know what what uh, what a healthy person should have in their fridge. That's what we talked about for the main. Perfect uh, part of the show, kind of thing. That's so, correct. Um, what's the best way for people to find you? Are you a Twitter person? Are you a like um, DeanLaurie dot com? L O R E Y. Yeah, it's all that stuff. I mean, yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's just uh, Dean Laurie. Um, uh, I do have a website. It's www.deanlaurie.com. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook. I have a I have a Facebook fan page that's really pretty active um, that uh, we have a lot of fun at, and I put a lot of behind the scenes stuff on. So there, there's lots of ways cool. to get in touch with me, and 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 I answer uh, every email that I get. Cool. Um, you know, people can email me through my website. So um, it may take me. A little bit. I, I don't always get to it immediately, but I do answer everything. So, oh man, well, it's been just a real pleasure. It really has. I, I've learned a ton about the behind the scenes of, of uh, a Hollywood writer. Today. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. This was great. This was some of the most fun I've had. Oh, good, ladies and gentlemen. You've now just ep- uh, listened to episode number one zero six of the Solopreneur Hour. As always, you can grab the show notes at uh, solopreneurhour.com slash one zero six, and uh, we'll see you next time. Solopreneur Hour podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash solo hour, on Twitter at solo hour, and of course at solohour.com.